Hello, Kubernetes community, and welcome to another edition of the Pod Control Podcast. Um, we have some uh, interesting news that's that's come up this week. Some uh, some some big announcements from a couple different companies, uh, and a, and a few other things we want to talk about uh, today. Brian, how's it going? Things are good, man. I uh, <clears throat> I got through the uh, for for people to listen to my other show. I got through the Krispy Kreme run. I lived, so that was good. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, as we get to the later part of the show, like. We, we need to talk about this whole like Groundhog's Day thing because, you know, like it's 2018 and you people in Pennsylvania are still figuring out the weather based on some crazy rodent. So how that's oh, possible, I don't, I don't understand. I blame you for that. I blame, I blame <laughs> you and the people that you live around for continuing that uh, that farce of six weeks of more weather or bad weather. Oh, on, on the li- on the list of things we can complain about Pennsylvania people about as as a transplant here, I might make that clear. <laughs> um, I think we saw uh, it's pretty far down the list after uh, last night after the Super Bowl, uh, kind of the goings on in Philadelphia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, listen, uh, there was there was a lot of news, you know, kind of um, you know we've always said like we don't want the show to be completely about news, but there was there was a bunch of news last week that we thought would be uh, good to to highlight for people and kind of lump together. So where do you want to start with that one? Um, I guess I guess you know we'll we'll start at the top. Um, you know, kind of I think is the biggest you know news uh, just from the the names involved is that uh, Red Hat acquired uh, CoreOS last week. Yeah, I heard about that. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think the big theme that we're going to get out of these these couple of announcements is um, there is still a lot of uh, kind of things that people are trying in terms of business models. Um, around open source and and around how to bring Kubernetes to the market. So we'll hit on all three of them. But uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, there's, we sort of have to be a little bit uh, careful about how we talk about this and not in the context of we don't want to be transparent to the community, but because this is a kind of a brand new acquisition and there's existing technologies and there's existing comp- customers of these companies. And, um, you know, we don't want to put information out there that's, prior to it being kind of official. I mean, obviously the, the acquisition's official, but people are already asking like, hey, you know, will all the technologies survive and where will you integrate and, you know, how will you go to market? And and those answers, those answers will be determined quite honestly, probably within the next couple of weeks, at least the, the framework of that. But that's probably as far as we can kind of dig into it. Yeah, yeah, I always think that's funny as you'll you'll see with any sort of acquisition announcement. The announcement's not even in the of the acquisition closing. It's just like a definitive agreement has been signed and it's like, "Okay, cool. Now tell me what's going to happen over the next 2 years in in great in super deep detail." And it's like, "Well, like no, that's not how this works." <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. And and having been through a lot of acquisitions, I mean, it, this one's sort of interesting. I I think the feedback that I've seen in the market has been um, you know, generally pretty positive. People look at this and they say um, you know, the, the big thing for acquisitions is always there's sort of a, a mental checklist that people go through, right? Is it, um, you know, are you are you buying market share, which like Oracle has done in the past, they've sort of bought competitors. Um, are you buying adjacent technologies, which hope you, you know, hopefully help you move into new markets because there's some, there's some, you know, compatibility or synergy between maybe what the existing company does and the acquired company does. Um, and then sometimes there's times when, you know, the larger company, the acquiring company is trying to accelerate what they're doing. And, you know, the, the company who's getting acquired, you know, it just, it just makes sense either, you know, they were not as big, but their technology could help their people could help. I, I think this one falls into that latter category. This is really about, 
you know, Red Hat trying to accelerate what they're doing around containers, around Kubernetes, around, you know, multi-cloud and so forth, much more so than, you know, trying to, you know, eliminate products out of the marketplace or, uh, you know, trying to get into something that they don't have, you know, some level of expertise with. Yeah, I, I always think of um, I uh, heard Tom Mendoza, the the former NetApp uh, CEO, talk about a conversation he had with with someone on the board there when they were considering an acquisition, and uh, he was like, "Oh, well, you know, we're looking at this company," and he's like, "I think you know where they're doing is like there's basically he he said like here we can you know invest in this technology it's growing really quick and then um, you know we think their sales are going to be really high and stuff like this and and the uh, the board members like well." is this going to kind of help you accelerate your business? Like these, you know, are you investing in things that are going to help the rest of your business, you know, move your products forward, you know, larger markets, things like that. He's like, or is it just a good investment? He's like, if it's just a good investment, he's like, you should stop running a company and and go work for a hedge fund or something. Right. Right. So he's like, you know, that's, I think that definitely applies here where it's like, well, will this help Red Hat move, you know, move forward in the container space further. And I think that's, that's makes the most sense. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I know personally, I've had a chance to know uh, both uh, Alex and Brandon since way back in 2013, uh, met those guys in, in New Orleans. They were, they were two guys. And I was like, why in the world would you want to get into the Linux business and didn't quite understand what they were doing for about a year. And then, you know, containers started to become kind of a buzzy word. And, um, you know, they've, they've built a pretty, interesting set of technologies, right? It's, it's hard to scale a business, um, which people might say, okay, that's what they didn't necessarily get right. Well, that's, that's really hard to do. Um, but they, they do have, you know, really, really good engineering. Um, they've, they've looked at things in a really kind of unique way. That's, I think if you think about how people want to work with technology, make it, make it painless, make it easy to upgrade, um, you know, solve complex distributed problems like, um, from purely an engineering standpoint and just good people in the open source community, they, uh, they're, they're right up there with it. They check all those boxes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, that's, I think the, the overall kind of takeaway I got, you know, obviously not talking to anyone deep in the, you know, involved in, in the transaction, just overall, whether it's externally or internally, Red Hat's been pretty positive. I've been pretty happy about the, uh, about the pairing. Yep. Yep. Um, so the next one that we have on our list is, and I don't remember what the exact order was. So we'll just kind of go with what's in the show notes. Um, Cisco made an announcement at their Cisco Live event um, that they are <clears throat> they're announcing their Cisco Container Platform or the availability of the Cisco Container Platform. And this really kind of becomes the the second step. So um, last fall, I think it was um, both Chuck Robbins, who's the Cisco CEO, and Diane Green, who runs Google Cloud, made an announcement that, that Cisco and Google were going to be working together. Um, you know, they were going to be jointly figuring out ways to use Kubernetes technology, Istio technology. Uh, you know, kind of marry together Cisco's expertise in, in enterprise and on-prem, and Google Cloud's expertise in the cloud. This is sort of that next step in saying, okay, here's a here's a tangible um, offering for the marketplace. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think the original announcement was in October sometime that yeah. they were gonna you know kind of um, that this move was coming and then yeah then it's the kind of what you'd expect from Cisco you know getting into a space like this you know focusing on you know integrating with with the Cisco uh, hardware components on prem uh, and then they also talked about you know making sure the software the container platform software is available on non Cisco stuff as well so public cloud and and things like that. Right. Yeah. And, and they, they become sort of another company who is, is kind of using the tagline that says, hey, we will, we will always be compatible with Google. 
um, which is just interesting to me, which I, I think what they're trying to say is we'll always be compatible with the upstream Kubernetes. But, you know, it's it's an interesting thing because, um, you know, if you're if you're Google and you run GKE, for example, you you can you can manage the upgrade cycles of of the services on your cloud. Right. You don't really have to ask anybody for permission if you can do it seamlessly. Awesome. Um, but for companies that that deal with on-prem hardware and software, that's a little bit of a different game. So it'll be very interesting to watch um, not only Cisco, but kind of all the companies who say, hey, we are we are always going to be compatible with Google or you know Kubernetes, whichever one they really mean, um, when you still sort of have to ask your customer permission to go upgrade their software that lives on-prem. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's odd for... Like you said, it's not just Cisco. A, a couple companies kind of highlighting that approach is. I think it's odd because um, now that there's that you know conformant Kubernetes uh, effort inside CNCFware, you know, hey, look, we're we're, we're using the the end-to-end tests test suite, and if your if your distribution or service or whatever you're offering passes it, that means all the kube control commands work against it. Then then you know what else, what else do you need to uh to specifically focus on right. so it seems you know from a purely you know bits and bytes perspective you know and then obviously on top of it like what you said when it comes to like well now you know gke's on you know 1.9 or you know whatever 1.10 and it's like well we got to get the customer to get up to that to you know to because they want this new feature that's compatible that's not only in the later version well to stay kind of compatible you also have to stay pretty close versioning right right um, so yeah, so that'll be an interesting one to watch, uh, you know, sort of Cisco's first foray into, into containers, if you will. And the last one on our list is, um, Heptio who, you know, we've, we've mentioned Heptio before Heptio is, um, the startup that was, uh, founded by both Joe Beta and, and Craig McLucky, who were at Google at the time that, that Kubernetes was started as a, as a project and were, you know, were part of the original CNCF launch and everything. So, um, they announced, I think their terminology for it was sort of an undistribution, but the, the official name of it is the Heptio Kubernetes subscription. So what have you kind of uh, determined about the, the Heptio Kubernetes uh, subscription? Because it's, it's a very kind of different approach to how to bring an offering into marketplace. It's, it's like they said, sort of an un, not a distribution, but something else. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to find, you know, a previous iteration in open source to kind of compare it to and I've been I've been kind of struggling to find find one so um, if, if you know if you listeners think of one uh, you know tweet it at us or something remind me but basically the idea is well normally um, as a you know distribution provider whether it's Linux or or OpenStack or, or Kubernetes or whatever you're supplying the bits to the customer so that way you have some sort of control over uh, what they're using from a supportability perspective. Then you're also, you know, hey, we're gonna we're gonna backport patches and things like that, and you roll that into your your packages and you give that to the customer. Um, whereas here, they're not supplying any bits. They're saying use the upstream bits, um, and even use some of the you know hosted managed solutions, you know, stuff like AKS, GKE, EKS. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting to say like I. I, from kind of what I can gather, it's obviously you have to have uh, um, some savvy in your in your in your team to be able to you know sort of di. It's it's basically like DIY support for DIY doers. Which I mean, I've definitely heard people talk. We're like, oh, we'd really like to DIY, but we uh, you know we need some extra support. Um, and then that's where they end up going the distribution route. So I, I this one's kind of unique to me. I I haven't seen an approach like this before, and I'm interested to see what uh, what happens with it. 
Yeah, I was I was a little surprised by it. You know, I think at one point people thought, okay, um, you know, th- these guys will build a distribution. We, I mean, we've seen before where. Um, you know, the kind of the creators of a project, the founders of a project, if you will, decide to go commercial and, you know, and they, they've spin out a distribution. Like we've seen this, um, in the big data space around Hadoop with people like Cloudera, uh, you know, Red Hat's obviously done it with a couple of different things. You know, we saw it in the OpenStack world with things like Piston Cloud and Nebula. So like my initial thought was, oh, well, obviously they'll, they'll make a distribution. And then as they began building other projects, um, things like Arc for backup and Sonar Brewery for testing, I, I thought, oh, okay, they've, they've sort of said, hey, you know, their business model isn't in the distribution business. It's in all of the sort of product slash tools around operations. So things like backups and, uh, you know, monitoring. And I've said, okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. You know, there's, there's money to be made selling to, to IT operations. So like you said, this is a, I can't think either of a example of this approach to sort of an open source business or, a you know, a hybrid open business. Um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it works. Um, and, uh, it will be interesting to see what they also do with those projects like arc and, and other things, um, in terms of, you know, making them commercially supported or, or, you know, open core or whatever else might be out there. So I, I think what the summary of this week was, you know, uh, there's there's some different business models that are emerging around Kubernetes. Um, you know, some of them we've seen before um, in terms of distribution. Some we haven't seen before, and then you know, also a little bit of consolidation in the market as well, which is about to be expected given the market's probably you know two two and a half years old, almost three years old now. So, um, so anyways, hey, listen, you know, on the theme of of, uh, of Groundhog's Day, you know, and this idea that uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna hear about the same thing for for six weeks, what? You know, as, as you think about, um, you know, what you hear from people and, and the basic questions you get, like how often is the most basic question you get, um, you know, either something along the lines of, well, what should developers care about when they're dealing with a Kubernetes or a container or, um, you know, what what applications can go into a container? Is that To me, those feel like the most common basic things that we hear over and over again, sort of in Groundhog Day fashion. Yeah, I, I think it's it's. It's really interesting based on the direction people come to kind of come to it from. Um, whereas if you're if you have you know a deep background in some of these technologies, you kind of understand it. Uh, but I, I feel like there's this sometimes people are afraid to say like I have no idea how that works. So it's just like oh yeah yeah I, I totally yeah that's totally the the next big thing or this is how it's going to work. Uh, and I feel and you know obviously it happens with with all sorts of tech and you see with containers too where it's this sort of like black boxy thing. There's this container. It's like oh how how does this app go in this container or will this work with it? You know can I use containers for this or well I definitely need this whole separate thing because I can't use a container for that. And you're like well do you know what a container is? Like it's 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 some Linux processes and, and, and technology, you know, kernel technologies. Like it's, there's no real magic to it. Um, so I think that's where some people get wrapped around the axle with it when they're, you know, trying to kind of, you know, the, our human brain likes to organize things, um, and things we don't understand and place it into buckets we know already just cause it's easier. And I think sometimes it gets, makes things more confusing than they even need to be. Yeah. And the reason I've kind of going down this path is a, is a couple of things. One, um, you know, I, I think when we when we talk about containers, you know, there's been a lot of technologies in the past that people would typically say, well, you know, that that's a technology that applies to developers. Right. So maybe it's, uh, you know, GitHub or it's Jenkins or it's, uh, you know, some 
you know, middleware framework or something like that. And they would go, that's really a developer specific tool. And then another one might be some storage device or, you know, a firewall or something. And they go, yeah, it's really kind of an operation situation. And, and I think containers has, has kind of blurred that line, right? There's elements of containers that developers care about. And then there's elements of it that, that operators care about. So I think that's, you know, as, as we, we sort of move into people saying, well, you know, is what something does a CAS or is it a PaaS or what should the developer experience going to be? I'm going to kind of throw out this premise I have, which is I don't think it matters anymore. I, I think what we've seen is we've seen standardization of container packaging, right? Whether that's, you know, the Docker project or it's OCI or something, you know, in that, in that area. And then we've seen sort of standardization for the most part around Kubernetes as the thing that says, once the application is ready to run, here's the the engine that runs it. Do you, can you, can you buy into that sort of theory? Is that a conversation worth having? Uh, absolutely. I think, I think that you're a hundred percent right from, from that perspective. I think that the linking kind of the linking feature, which used to be broken in kind of the, the application lifecycle of development and running was like dependency management and stuff like that, where it's the old, Hey, it works on my laptop or, you know, it works in dev environment, but it just, you know, barfed and prod. Like why we have to figure out what's different. You know, ops digging through and be like, Oh, they, we didn't update this package or whatever. Um, so I think the developers like that standpoint of like, well, all of my dependencies are clearly defined in my Docker file. So you can't come back at me and say, well, you miss, you're missing some dependency in production. And then for that same reason, the ops side likes that of like, well, the developers given us all of their dependencies in here, and so they're very well contained. But then we need a platform to actually run it highly available and, and scalable and those types of things. And I, I think it's absolutely. I think that's. There's definitely tons of line blurring, and some of that is just right DevOps kind of thing is kind of that point of like the lines do blur, and there's there's still those roles that have to happen. But you know there could be you know kind of. All those people together. I think. I think that I've definitely seen that. Um, we, you know, where we see, uh, like people. I saw uh, like Key Bank talking about their use of of OpenShift. They were like, well, basically their developers don't even know they're running. You know, they're they're just doing commits and it's kicking off a pipeline. And yes, the operators are using Kubernetes and they love it. You know, and OpenShift and you know that's what runs their apps. And the devs just see things happen faster, but they don't they don't even interact with the platform. So right. you know, thinking of Kubernetes and things like that as like a developer platform seems sort of sort of misplaced it's more of yeah the containers of the developer platform and then the kubernetes the orchestrator is the is the operator platform right well and, and i think that the, there was two things that i saw recently that that kind of built this spectrum in my mind and and i think this is where i'm going with this so on one hand and these are both in the show notes right on one hand we saw at kubecon um you know kelsey hightower gave one of his keynote talks and he, and he basically said like you know here's a way that developers can can deal with their applications and it's you know write my application commit my application into into some git repository and uh and then you know do something that basically moves it along the the software supply chain if you will and then eventually it gets you know it gets into staging i can validate some things it gets into production and essentially what he said was you know beyond you writing that code and however you want to package that code whether you deal with it as code or as a container like Everything beyond that is, from a developer's perspective, is just implementation details. They're not like they're, like they're not a they're not sort of the gospel, right? Like, however that happens, cool as long as your operations team can do it repeatably in an automated way. And then the flip side of it was uh, Stephen um, Stephen O'Grady, who's at Redmonk, wrote a piece talking about serverless, and it was kind of in the vein of, hey, we're seeing you know 
some of these serverless frameworks that are coming along, a lot of them are now being kind of written to run on top of containers because they allow, you know, allows it to run on Kubernetes, allows it to be multi-cloud and so forth. And, and I kind of thought about that and I was like, you know, again, whether you just want to be a developer that writes code and doesn't care about everything else, you just want to write, push, hopefully it goes into production, or you do care about containers, like we're now at the point where there's technology that says, you know, cool, figure out, figure out the implementation you want. But if you're smart about it, the underlying orchestrator will end up being Kubernetes. And the thing that pushes stuff into Kubernetes will end up using sort of consistent container packaging. And if you, and if you, kind of abide to those two core principles, however you want to develop, whether it's container centric or it's sort of code centric, you know, the, the, the thing that you do as an operator should support both those things. And, and, you know, if your company likes one versus the other, that's cool, but th- like you, you need to be flexible enough to deal with both of those, but, but don't build siloed systems just to get there. Yeah. I think, I think that goes back to kind of like where I started, where people see it, these, these black box kind of technologies and yeah. they don't understand what's happening under the cover. So then they like, we need all these different silos for these different use cases where like Amazon, like what is Amazon really doing with Lambda? Like they're taking your code. They're quick. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, connective tissue in there, but they're, they're spinning up containers, running them and turning them off. I mean, that's basically right. what's happening with Lambda. It's the same thing if you look at like PaaS or something like, oh, this PaaS, they take the code and it's like, it's taking your code, it's building a container and then it's running the container, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, and that's the, and that's the thing, even the, even the PaaS platforms of the past, right? At the, you know, the cloud foundries and her, I mean, they, they ran containers under the covers and the reason we're seeing everybody move to Kubernetes now is, you know, part of it's technology is powerful, but part of it's like, why do I want to have something that's not supported by the biggest community out there, you know, to help maintain the thing, right? Like it's, it's not a differentiator anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the kind of the desire to, you know, we do like abstractions and and moving up the stack and, but I think that people, well, I always think of the, you know, the, the law of leaky abstractions, right? All non-trivial abstractions to some degree are leaky. Um, so the idea of like, well, well, we just, we, there's this next level and then we just don't even think about the underlying level anymore. And it's like, well, it's not, it doesn't exactly work that way. And I think especially this area is particularly messy. Um, and I, I think also sometimes, um, hiding some things is different than an abstraction too, mm-hmm. where if you're like, well, I still have to deal with this thing. This thing still exists and still happens. We've just kind of like preset this, the, the dial and put a piece of tape over it. It's like, well, that thing, you didn't really abstract it. It's, it's just, you've set it to default. So that's, that's a different thing, which may be fine, but you know, I think it's, it's much more, um, much more complex than that. Is you're figuring, figuring out how to, how to set these things up. And I think, I think the idea is, you know, we always hear this with everything is whatever the new thing is, eventually everything's moving to it, right? Right, right. So, so, and I think serverless is the new one, you know, was containers, now it's serverless, you know, was PaaS back in the day, was everything, like no one's going to do this any other way. And it's like, well, I think to me, I think there's some specific use cases for serverless, FAS, whatever, whatever yeah. you want to call it, where... They, it makes a ton of sense, but then it does it in other ones. So just being like, well, everyone's just going to move to this model, I think is, uh, you know, kind of again. And then you're like, oh, you need all three of them. So you may want to do containers. 
you may want to you know package some stuff up or you may want to do you know just total serverless kind of deal like well then you need you know every company being like well we need to pick a platform for each and have three platforms seems seems kind of ludicrous when under the covers all they're doing is building and starting containers right well i i sort of look at it this way and, and again you know th- this argument might have been different a year and a half ago or something so so if you think about the the broadest categories of of where an application might fall into uh you're going to have kind of you know new 12 factor applications right you're going to have um stateful applications or you know somewhat stateful applications uh you're going to you know potentially going to have serverless right essentially you know this break down things into into a, a small factor of a function and then you're going to have something where you're you're either going to say like you know it absolutely can't run on a on a container for whatever reason, it's some humongous Oracle database. It's a legacy thing. Or you say, like, th- like you don't really know. All you know is it's an API and it's a service, right? And I, and I look at those sort of four categories and I say, 12-factor, yeah, you can absolutely run those on containers. We see people running, you know, Spring applications and other stuff in containers today works great on Kubernetes. Stateful applications, uh, yeah, we've seen a ton of people doing that on Kubernetes in containers today. That, you know, it was a big misperception for a while, but, you know, that's more than doable today. And, and obviously things like stateful sets will make it better for cluster databases. Uh, you know, we're seeing the emergence of, of serverless on containers or functions as a service on containers. It's not perfect. Uh, it's still got a little ways to go to catch up to Lambda, but in terms of if your goal is to make it multi-cloud, like it's, it's emerging. Um, and then I look at the, the last category of like, well, it can't run in a container or it's not supposed to, or you're not supposed to care. Like that's where the service broker, the sort of Kubernetes now service broker comes into play. I, I feel like for the majority of use cases, unless you are, you really want to be an outlier, like this is, you know, this is where you should be saying like this one platform can do 80%, 90% of, of the bulk of what we're going to need to want, you know, need to do, whether we do it exactly today or we do it, you know, very soon uh, in these, in these containerized platforms. Yeah, and I, I think the the my real takeaway with a lot of this stuff is it's more you know you're basically talking about different sort of application mo- building models you know how you're going to yeah. architect them and 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 thinking about those things more than it is you know platform specific or or something like that and I think that's one of the interesting th- to me Lambda ties so closely with kind of cloud when EC2 first came out um, to me there was a, there's a technical component right mm-hmm. there, what EC2 at the time was you can get VMs in a very programmatic way, right? There's a very stable API that works really well, which just none of the virtualization platforms had at the time. Uh, so that was the big technical kind of move forward. Uh, but other than that, you were just getting VMs. But the other side of it was the cost aspect, right? You're renting it. You're paying per minute, per hour, right. you know, per day type of thing. Um, so the idea of like people like, well, you we need to build one of these in our data center. It's like, well, if you're building the whole cloud, like you're paying for the whole thing. So the the business piece is really out. It's more of you're doing it for that tech. You just need the kind of you know technical API piece. And I think we're seeing the same thing with Lambda, where it's there's two pieces to Lambda. One is you know kind of like that you know very small footprint and just infinitely scalable of like every time you call it it spins up another one so you can get a lot of you know parallel executions depending on needs uh, but the other piece of it is you only pay when they're triggered and by the you know the amount of time it runs well if you again if you're if if you're running serverless on on in house like you are already paying for all the stuff that's running it so whether your your functions get executed one time or a million times, you know, it's it's still costing the same. So there's still a technical advantage, but it's it's splitting out the 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 kind of the cost component of it because that's you know one of the big drivers. Right. Well and it it becomes kind of the classic, you know, if if you think about all these 
<clears throat> applications t- application types as as just that they're really just you know net new services that that are available on the platform then you know adding serverless capabilities becomes you know marginal cost of of basically zero almost because you're like you said you already have the infrastructure you're already running the platform you've already got expertise in terms of you know how to spin up containers or how to you know deliver some sort of catalog that allows developers to have access if you you know, if you think of these as, as separate, like, oh, I have to have a separate orchestrator for each one of these because they're really unique. You know, your your marginal cost of each one of these is not just like the software to do that. It's, a, you know, separate operational thinking, separate services, separate depreciation, separate, you know, like, so the idea of trying to silo these when in reality, there's a good amount of it that's, that's very common. Um, I think people are going to run into very expensive implementations that, uh, you know, they may not need to. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm still, you know, then we see people like, well, I want to build a serverless platform or run one on multiple public, because cl- I don't want to be, you know, if I go all in on Lambda, I'm kind of stuck there and, you know, kind of the same stuff we heard with cloud, right? And then that was when we were going to use some sort of cloud orchestrator. And mm-hmm. um, I, th- I think, you know, based because it's so down to the individual function level, I, I think we're going to see a, um, you know, an emergence of some sort of like frameworks for serverless so like hey i build in this framework and then it works and it's easy to move it around uh, and you start to see like some um i think iopipe um yeah iopipe, is, iopipe does that a little bit for like monitoring ser- there's a thing called the serverless framework which already does this it allows you to be multi you know multi uh, serverless f- uh, framework if you i mean like it works on lambda mm-hmm. it works on open whisk it works on Azure mm-hmm. and stuff. So that stuff is already emerging and, um, you know, they may not be as well known to people that are just in the container community, but they're pretty well known in the, in the serverless world already. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think that's going to, uh, kind of affect some of it. So it's like, well, do I need one platform that I can run on all the public clouds? Or it's like, I can, you know, leverage some of those frameworks there and also leverage it on my, in my on-prem instance of whatever I'm using to do, to do serverless. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and I think what we're going to find in, in 2018 is, um, you know, there's still, for for those of us that live in sort of the developer world, uh, the, the vendor world, which means sometimes we, we deal with a lot of end user companies and stuff, we still see people that, that use terminology like containers as a service and, and platform as a service. And we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk to customers who say, well, our, our, our company already has a platform as a service strategy. We need a container as a service strategy. And um, I, I think, you know, my, my guidance to stuff like that is, be be careful sort of siloing yourself internally like that because again um the 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 things that you want to get to are you know can we can we deal with a whole lot of different developer experiences push code push a container eventually push a function um and the concept of a paths or a cas or distinct lines between them are pretty well technically blurred it's just a matter of people you know, figuring out like, what are you okay with? You know, are you okay with just saying, look, this is our application platform. This is our container platform. It does all these different things. But I think that's the, the, the approach to take, um, as opposed to yet thinking about everything as a silo. Yeah. And I think it starts to hit people that, you know, once they really understand what happens under the covers, like, you know, Hey, guess what? Heroku is just basically building containers when you, when you uh, use it, that the fact that when they see, I think sometimes the light bulb goes off when you see things like, Every Heroku build pack is also available as a Docker image. <laughs> so, yeah. like, oh, I have this code. I want to run it in Docker or you know Kubernetes or whatever. It's like, well, just use the Docker image that has the Heroku build pack for the language you want. And they're like, 
oh, oh yeah oh okay I get it now it's 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 the same thing like I'm doing a couple extra steps because I'm running a Docker file versus them figuring it out for me but it's under the covers of the same things happening right right and we've seen the same thing with with S2I with OpenShift is you know the, you, you can make the same things happen regardless of sort of what your end end state needs to be so well listen man I, I think we've gone quite a bit um, on this space I, I think you know the, the walkaways from this are um, you know as we're moving into 2018. The, the technologies are there to where the, the lines between what used to be a PaaS, what used to be a CAS are can can now sort of be gone if you want them to be. I mean, the, the standardization of the technologies there, the communities around, uh, you know, around Kubernetes and around sort of OCI, if you will, as a, as a framework. Um, and it just it becomes a, a thing for enterprise operators to say, enterprise architects to say, you know, if this is an investment we're making over the next five, 10 years, like, do I really want to introduce new silos or, you know, do I feel like we can solve 80, 90% of the problems uh, using this common technology with a really you know, broad, robust uh, ecosystem around it? Yeah, I, I think it also ties back to kind of a larger scale shift I'm starting to see in kind of paying attention to IT organizations. Um, and I think a piece that's pushed push forward by cloud and stuff like that is the there's a customizations come with a cost. Yep. Right, where back in the day we'd be like, uh, you know, as an IT architect, we'd be like, we're going to build this most perfect thing, and we're going to get the best pieces from all these vendors. We're going to c- tweak it this perfect way. We're trying to build the best thing, um, and not realizing every time you change something from a default or do something that someone else isn't doing, there's a cost to it, whether it's upgrades or support or things like that. And I think that's really sinking in now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, when people are looking like, well, can this platform do eighty percent of what we need? It's like. Yes, there's a cost for us having an extra separate platform, or there's a cost for us changing or using this non-standard, you know, component like that we're that we're going to be paying for as long as we have this project. So yep. we need to think about it at least. And I think that's that's really starting to happen. I think that's that's great. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I'm going to wrap it up with that. Um, apologize to folks for getting this out uh, uh, sort of a day late or 12 hours late. We had some technical difficulties, but uh, we will be back on the Monday track hopefully next week. And uh, good to talk to everybody, and we will talk to you next week. 